Hurry in during Ram Truck Month and discover what it truly means to drive a truck that's built to serve. Ram Truck Month, going on now. And now, current FCA vehicle owners finance and get $8,480 in total values on the 2023 Ram 1500 Bighorn Crew Cab. Don't miss this great offer. See your local Ram dealer today. Total values include combined cash allowance and 2,980 Bighorn Level 2 package value. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 5123. Welcome to Women Winning Divorce. I am your host, Heather Quick. I am an attorney, entrepreneur, author, and founder of Florida Women's Law Group, the only divorce firm for women by women. I love thinking big, thinking outside the box, creating creative solutions for women and empowering women to win in all aspects of their life. Our approach at Florida Women's Law Group is to provide women with a strategy to not only achieve their objectives, but win at life. I believe that what may show up as adversity is simply an opportunity to change and improve your life. In each episode, I sit down with innovative professionals and leaders who are focused on how you can be your best self before, during, and after divorce. In these conversations, we are looking at how women can win at life. I have the unique opportunity to meet women when they are at a transition period of life. But that is only the beginning to becoming your best self and winning at life on your terms. With our guests, we enjoy the opportunity to explore ways all women can win and enhance their life, no matter where they are in their journey. Because divorce is just a point in life, not the end and not what defines you, rather a catalyst for your growth. Welcome to Women Winning Divorce. Each week we discuss issues including divorce, custody, alimony, paternity, mediation, and other family law issues to provide insight on the journey of women winning divorce. I'm Heather Quick, attorney and owner of Florida Women's Law Group. And today I'm joined by Cynthia Salome. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. Thank you so much. I am so glad to have you today. Um, I think that our listeners are going to love this topic because so many people don't even know it exists. And What we're talking about today is how using a parenting coordinator in a high-conflict divorce case can help you move forward with your case and your life. And so, Cynthia, you are qualified. You have a lot of qualifications. So, and I probably might miss them all, but you are an attorney. You're also a Florida Supreme Court family mediator as well as a parenting coordinator. So, tell us how that all came together and you are where you are now. Sure. I think that early on in my career as an attorney, I knew from the get-go that litigation and so many areas of the law are surrounded around the fight. And um, my work through legal aid essentially brought me to where I am today. And through that work, I assisted families um, in advocating for their developmentally disabled children and helped them reinstate their Medicaid benefits that were essentially stripped. And so through that, Um, I was able to recognize that advocating for a group of people who essentially didn't have a voice was where I wanted to be. And parenting coordination is where I landed because it's the same concept. I'm helping parents through their fight and their parenting journey um, and essentially helping the minor children that are really affected by um, much of the turmoil that affects these, these parents and the things that come along with high conflict cases. And yeah, we're, we're definitely, well, we're going to dig deep into that today, which is fascinating um, to me for sure. And I know for our listeners, but that is really the key. You are working with the parents, but the goal, if, it, if it's successful, is also helping the children really primarily. Absolutely. The, the goal of parenting coordination is really geared around assisting parents with their struggles but the end result is really to help the minor children who can't help themselves in these situations so that's a huge component um, if not the main focus of parenting coordination it should be geared around the best interest of the child absolutely and that's you know i'll tell you which is for and for our listeners that's a big part of family law and in florida and really across the country you'll always you hear maybe used in different words, but the best interest of the children in any cases with children. But the way you've articulated it today just makes it more clear to me because as the advocate, 
you know, I'm thinking about this is going to help my client in their communication, in that, you know, relationship overall with parenting coordination. But I, I truly have never looked at it or thought of it in the way we are doing this for the primary concern of helping the child. And I think that that distinction is really important because it's just a way to reframe it, I think, that helps looking at it in that way. Yes, and I think oftentimes it's important for the parents themselves to shift their mindset and start to begin to improve communications through this process and to work on healing kind of the dysfunctional relationship in a way that can really benefit their children. Because not only are the parents suffering through this process, but sometimes more gravely, the children are the ones that are suffering more intensely and more quietly oftentimes um, in the corners. And so through the use of parenting coordination, yes, we are helping the parents learn how to communicate um, and implement strategies of proper communication and techniques and educating them on some of the deleterious effects that they're having on their children. So it's an entire scope that I'm sure throughout this time we'll, we'll kind of dive into. But um, I, I think it's important for the parents to understand that, that they're doing this not only for themselves, but ultimately for the betterment of their children, yes. I think that's great and that really is the perfect segue into some of the things I wanted to talk about first because I've been been doing family law, practicing family law for, for quite some time now. And this didn't used to be a thing 20 years ago. So when did this concept of parenting coordination become, you know, uh, something that you can be certified in, a valid um, resource in divorce and family law cases? So there were, there were early talks in literature probably back in the 1980s that date back to the 1980s where our family courts recognized a need for a resource other than constant litigation for this 10 to 15% of cases that were so highly litigious. Um, but it really wasn't until the early 2000s, I think Oklahoma was the first state to enact parenting coordination. And then Florida, which is where, where we practice, um, implemented parenting coordination in 2009. So still a relatively newer area of the law, at least when I began, it was only you know a mere few years old. And so talks were were being had, but it really hadn't been enacted until the the 2000s. And let's talk a little bit about that because the 10 to 15 percent of cases, because this parenting coordination is not necessary for everybody. You've highlighted there's the 10 to 15 percent of cases, highly litigious. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about who those cases are so our listeners can know oh okay that maybe that's me or that's not me you know that they will be able to identify with hey what are the cases that we're talking about um need this and that can benefit sure that's a great question so you're absolutely right and you know that many many families can get divorced and the divorce process is stressful in its own way and typically those parents aren't always acting in the most favorable favorable light for the children. However, many cases, you know, after the divorce process, things settle down, the dust settles, and the parents are able to act according to the parenting plan that they have implemented. But yes, that 10 to 15% of cases, um, they are unable to resolve disputes regarding the well-being of their children without resorting to litigation. And it covers the most minor of areas, whether it's Um, you know, what foods the children are taking to lunch, to who takes them to get a haircut, um, what time is transfer, and they're fighting over 30 to 45 minutes of time, Um, the inability to make minor adjustments in their parenting plan without major turmoil. And so it really is designed for the cases where the communication has broken down so badly that they cannot in any facet resolve their disputes without having third-party intervention, whether that's from their attorney's help and then ultimately resorting to the courts. And so high conflict, you know if you're high conflict, if really I've detailed any of the areas that um, you and your ex, or even they may not have been married previously if they're just parents um, who have children out of wedlock. I, I have cases where that's the case. 
it's really just the inability to resolve disputes on, on any level, day-to-day -day activities especially. You mentioned the distinction because not everyone is married and, and that, you know, they still might be highly litigious because I think what is, is fascinating to me is that not, this didn't always exist, right? Well, let's say they were married or before they got to Maya, before, hey, we're in court. Sometimes like this was not an issue at all, right? I mean, do you find that there are married people who are divorced? Maybe, I mean, obviously they weren't getting along and they're wanting a divorce, but to the level of like what you talked about, what's packed in the lunch or whatever, like that's new now that they're divorced, right? I mean, that wasn't the kind of fighting that broke up the marriage. Generally, I'm speaking generally. I don't, I really don't know, but I, I find that it probably wasn't all there at, to that level. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, and I think a critical component is that when, when the family unit is together, that each parent typically will take on different roles. Um, so it could be the mother or the father that let's just use the packing of the lunches is packing the children's lunch or taking them to get haircuts because that's their role in that family unit. But once you're divorced and each parent maybe has, um, characteristics of controlling behaviors, or let's use the term type A personalities where things have to be really neat and orderly. So now you've divided a house where the duties were separated, but now both parents want that sense of control and say um, in what in what their children are experiencing and doing. And not to mention when you get divorced through that process, the animosity and the spite and the resentment that builds up through that divorce process towards the other parent can sometimes be really severe and very difficult for certain parents to overcome. And I think not being able to put aside their own feelings really leads to them making poor decisions for their children or nitpicking everything just to let's say get back at the other parent or to not let go of a, of a portion of that relationship that they still are hanging on to um sometimes the drama and the um, contention can be addicting for some of these parents and um, they don't know how to get out it ends up taking on a life of its own and so um, they really need assistance on reeling it back in understanding that yes they were married at one point in time that was the mom or dad's duty to pack the lunch but now it's both and each parent has an equal say in those things. But for, for many of the high conflict cases, a lot of it is me teaching or trying to educate the parents that they need to take a step back. And that unfortunately the circumstances are what they are and they cannot possibly control every aspect of that child's life 100% of the time anymore. Um, and so that's, that's what I see coming up quite frequently in my cases. And, and I know we'll touch back on, touch back on that, of course, again, and it is, you know, and it's like, I, um, I can see, and this is, you know, I can see myself in so many of situations where the clients are, right? Because I, hey, I want to control everything. And I think children are just like, they teach you a lot, right? About what you have very little control as they, as mine are, you know, uh, older teenagers and, and you recognize it was a false sense of what you had control over and, and how much you can influence things. I mean, and we do, ideally we are influencing them throughout the time, but it's that control over the little things. And I know that it can be just so difficult for a lot of humans to feel like they're giving that to someone else. And then that is that's really taking that away because it's hard to see, well, we can both control the things with when the children are with us. Um, but I know, I mean, we, we've done this for many years. So uh, a lot of, a lot of folks, it's just difficult, but um, now let me ask you this, what does it take to be a parenting coordinator? Because not just anybody is, and you got your law degree, you've got your mediation training. So, but what is required in Florida? Okay. So in, in Florida in particular, there are certain professional requirements and then there are certain training requirements. Um, you can be a, a licensed mental health counselor with a PhD, essentially a 
um, a licensed physician who's certified under the Board of Psychiatry or Neurology. And then like myself, um, have a Juris Doctorate. So an attorney who is in good standing with the Florida Bar. So those are the three professional areas in which one can um, practice the parenting coordinator here in Florida. They're very similar in other states as well. Um, and then the training that's involved is, you know, once you're in good standing, I'll just speak for attorneys as with the Florida Bar, you then have to become a family law mediator guided by the Florida Supreme Court. And um, in addition to that, you have to have a parenting coordination training where it really dives into the details of what parenting coordination is, the complexities of the case, um, understanding more in-depth family dynamics. We do go into some, you know, some psychological tools that we need in our box to be able to assess um, personalities that tend to have characteristics of personality disorders. So these are all important factors and training that parenting coordinators have to go through, not to mention ongoing, just like we do our continued legal education that we, I still have to maintain for the Florida Bar and to maintain the license. Um, but those are essentially the professionals that can practice parenting coordination and the additional training that's required um, in Florida pursuant to the, the parenting coordination statute. Now, so obviously you, I want to touch on this before, before we go to a break, because, all right, so licensed mental health counselor, PhD, a medical doctor within those um, areas or the attorney. So obviously you don't have to be an attorney to be right. um, a parenting coordinator, but how is that helpful? Like, how do you see that is giving you insight that would be different? Mm -hmm. I think it is a huge advantage for the clients to have an attorney who is trained in the law to assist them throughout the parenting coordination process. So much of what I do in my practice is helping the parents implement their current court orders or their current parenting plan. Um, and as you know, Heather, that creating parenting plans, you try your very, very best to not leave any holes, but it is virtually impossible to create a parenting plan that doesn't have great area. And so having a deeper understanding of the law and the intent behind parenting plans is a critical component for any parenting coordinator to be effective in what they do. Um, if you're not confident in your skills of interpreting court orders or helping the parents understand the intent behind certain excerpts in the parenting plan, I think it can muddy the waters for these parents who are already looking for ways to create chaos. So um, if there's a gray area in the parenting plan, something for an attorney, we could look at that and say, that's absolutely not what that excerpt was intended to do or say. You're really trying to find holes to create controversy and to try and argue a point that really doesn't exist. And so um, from my perspective, I don't, I don't know if I would be confident as a parenting coordinator if I didn't have the legal background that I have. Um, and we're able to offer, as an attorney, are able to offer what the ramifications are for not following through at this point to parenting coordinator recommendations and what that journey for them looks like. Um, you're going back to the courts, you're going back to litigation. And so um, I absolutely find it so helpful to have my legal background in doing what I do. Well, um, that, and that is great. It's a great time to take a break, but so very helpful because now, now we know the three, you know, the three kind of areas where we're going to see these professionals come in and that benefit with your legal education. So we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about what exactly is a high conflict case in a little bit more detail. And we're going to talk about like how you get set up with a parenting coordinator. While you wait, please visit womenwinningdivorce.com to subscribe and check out our resources. And if you are enjoying this so far, we appreciate you leaving us a five-star review. We will be right back. Welcome back to Women Winning Divorce. Today we are discussing using a parenting coordinator in high conflict divorce cases and how that can assist you moving forward with your case and with your life. And our guest today is Cynthia Salome. And before our break, we were discussing what parenting coordination is and the qualifications needed. And I want to follow, I think this is a good um, time to ask, how does it even happen, Cynthia? 
like how do you set up parenting coordination and you know what does it look like for those parties because i know there's a lot that goes into that sure um i think well ultimately it begins with recognition from the attorneys that are involved in the case and recognizing that the family needs a different venue to resolve their ongoing disputes so there's the identification that the parents need the assistance um, there's typically a court order that follows. I only accept cases that have court orders. I think it's too easy for these high conflict parents to get out of the process um, if there's not a court order, really keeping everybody accountable, not only the parents, but the parenting coordinators as well. So there's a court order. We, I receive the court order. I accept or deny that, um, that position as that case's parenting coordinator. And the process starts. Um, I have my own contract that the parents will read thoroughly. There's a plethora of information in there regarding the PC process, what it entails, and what to expect out of the process. Um, the parents begin. I then have intake um, with each parent where they're able to really give me their side of the story. Um, and oftentimes what I hear is that really the parent feels devalued or that their position hasn't been heard. So again, there's a breakdown of communication between the parents. And with that on the contract, um, I guess you kind of come up with the rules of how it, how you guys will all operate together. And do you generally start with say a list of objectives that we are going to try to achieve during this process? so that you guys have a direction or is it what's going on this month? How, how does it work or does it vary? So, the, so there's, there's direction in the court order itself typically, and it will detail what's expected of each parent. Um, usually the areas of concern have followed the case throughout time. So there's always the larger, bigger areas of concern that we try and tackle first. Um, and then as a preventative measure, yes, we're absolutely hitting on areas of concern as they come up in hopes of avoiding litigation. Um, so you have intake and then you hopefully join the parties into their first joint session. That looks different for every case, depending on um, the details. If there's a domestic violence injunction that's in place, obviously the parents aren't going to be in the same room. But ideally, it, you know, parenting coordination is most effective when you're able to get the parents in the same room, speaking again, um, and kind of lessening the tension in that manner. Because a lot of times, these parents haven't spoken for, you know, since they since they began the divorce process. So their only form of communication is either via email, our family wizard. Uh, most of them don't even won't allow text or it's court ordered to not be able to utilize the phone. Um, so that's really how the process begins. And I'm sure by the time they get to you, just listening to, you know, what you're saying, there's a lot, it's not like you're starting at the beginning because so much has happened. I'm sure it takes a period of time to maybe even get them to where there can be conversations and, and build trust in you. And then in the process, I, I imagine that it's a tough, uh, a tough thing to jump into at this point because they, they've already probably gotten pretty far along that line. So obviously, as we've talked with maybe animosity, litigation, unable to speak on the phone with one another. So that's a lot to at the very beginning, probably that you have to really work through. Absolutely. I mean, a huge part is again trying to shift the mindset that we're trying to get past the litigation and the fight mm -hmm. and and all of really the hate and spite that I see so frequently in my cases. And it takes a tremendous amount of work from, from our clients to really want that. Some come in and they don't want it. And it's very, very difficult to make progress in those cases. But if you have parents who are coming finally and saying, I'm done with the fight, um, litigation has, is so, so stressful. I mean, they've, some of them have been in it for years. The lucky ones, I would say, um, have great attorneys who recognize they need the help at kind of earlier on so that level level of spite and animosity hasn't gotten to the point where in some other cases they've been litigating for five or six years and their children are only seven or eight right so it's it's one of those um dynamics at play where it really just depends on where in the process they come into pc i have had some cases where 
the ink isn't even dry and they've been ordered to PC either by recognition of the judges or the attorneys that are involved. Um, and sometimes those can be effective because it is so early on. So you can kind of jump in early and, and try and fix areas of concern that don't lead to this huge volcano eruption. Um, but you're, you're right in that many of the cases come in after years of hard litigation and there is that level of spite and animosity and resentment towards the other parent and it's hard to overcome for many parents um, but we're able to implement and and recommend private therapy for certain parents that can be really difficult to get outside of parenting coordination um, if there's a recognition that the children need therapy we can hopefully talk with the parents to to get them to get them in the proper therapy so um, most of the time though the parents have been litigating for quite some time. Yes. There's also, I think there comes a time for, and even for the, most of my clients, but for the majority of clients, they recognize they don't want to be back in court, right? right. They may not be excited about having to improve that communication, but they see that as a better alternative than to, to be in front of the judge and the lawyers and just, that's so unknown versus if you can work together, at least you are playing a part in potentially a solution versus the complete unknown, right? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, I, um, and I just share that with the clients, like, you've got to be like, I mean, hey, you're paying me to go. And this is our job as our lawyers to go for you. But there's got to be a better way because this ends up, even when there's an answer, uh, and even say it's in your favor, it's just never ending. And it does, unfortunately, nothing to improve communication or those you know, feelings of animosity and anger, resentment, all of that, like none of that gets cured by, you know, a result by the judge, you know, at all. Right. No, I think, yeah, we, we know that litigation actually exacerbates those feelings and it increases the, those, the levels that the parents are feeling um, and those levels of resentment. So it's the opposite. So parenting coordination, we hope you can get in and, and work in a different manner to help the families. Um, and it's not about, posturing or or setting yourself up for the next litigation it really is supposed to be more of a healing process where these parents can express their concerns and and hopefully come together and say we need to make we need to start making some decisions for our children because they, they're being affected by the inability of the parents to be able to even communicate or see each other at a basketball game um to where you can cut the tension with a knife, right? Between the parents and all of the effects that these children are having by the parents' inability to communicate um, with one another. And so it, it is a very different process than the litigation process, um, but it's important. And as you and I, um, Heather, have worked together, it really is a collaborative effort between the, I'll reach out to the attorneys and um, just give them a heads up on, on what's happening or if they're, their client isn't abiding by PC recommendations because oftentimes in the PC process, a parent will say, Oh, you know, the parenting coordinator's biased. She's not, she's not making recommendations in my favor when ultimately um, it may be that that client may be the culprit of many of the problems. And so that's now surfacing in a different way for, for this client. And so really having the attorneys there to help the parents in a legal aspect, along with the parenting coordinator, um, is really important for, for PC success, in my opinion. And I think you're right that it, um, it is a collaborative effort. There's no doubt. And it's helpful um, because then the client, you know, they're going through it with you and sometimes they do want to reach out to the lawyer. Well, what does this look like? And, you know, then we can say, well, you know, I don't, this issue may or may not go your way, but, you know, I think that's why it is a process because you just have to engage and keep doing and participating. And unfortunately, I, you know, and you know me because I, I am uh, an advocate for all my clients and I, and I know they're doing the best that they can. Um, and so I, 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 I see that as, you know, it can be difficult if you believe that other person is not really 
engaging and helping it move along, it can be discouraging, but I still think probably less discouraging than, you know, a hearing most of the time. I would say, and it's probably 95% of the time, but at very least, at least 90% of the time, you are better off being kind of unhappy, not loving maybe certain things you're moving through in parenting coordination than taking that to a judge. Um, I I just think that overall, because there's a time for litigation, there's a purpose for that, but then once it comes up with these details that are a big deal, and I I understand that to each parent, and the course is not going to have the time or patience to deal with the parent's feelings about what they're what sport they're going to play what you know camp they're going to go to the school the babysitters but things that matter to the parents i know but it's just not even always the best venue with the judge and i've seen judges um and i know you've heard stories you know just yell at people which i don't think that's helpful at all either Um, but it happens Uh, it has happened in the past and yeah, you know that. Then you get no nowhere, right? And you spend all your money with on your case and your attorney, and then you're like, "Wow, now we just got yelled at, and we we haven't made any decisions." Um, now I think that you know the the parties that are in that. I mean, do you see? I think you mentioned it briefly. I mean, clearly you're going to see things sometimes that indicate maybe there are personality disorders. Um, mild, obviously we know that can be, you know, to, from mild to extreme, but that may contribute to just the constant high conflict. Um, yes, to, to speak candidly, I would say more often than not, it's, it's apparent that one parent or the other definitely has characteristics that are consistent with personality disorders. Um, And like you said, it can vary from minor to extreme, Um, but it, it presents itself fairly quickly in a PC process. I think a unique portion of parenting coordination is that I, I'm able to really see the whole picture and I see conversations in real time. I see the interactions between the parents in real time. Um, I often monitor to ensure compliance of parenting plans and communications and things of that nature. But as you're monitoring in, in real time, the communications between the parents, it becomes readily, it becomes very apparent oftentimes that there's one parent that may be the main culprit, so to speak. Oftentimes it really is both parents. I don't think I have many PC cases where it's really just one parent doing all of the doing. It's it's typically both parents doing this dance and having this dysfunctional dynamic that they mm-hmm. just can't get out of. Um, but but yes, there are tendencies and traits that, that come out free PC is that the parenting coordinator can see the whole picture. Whereas for you as an attorney, we are trained to advocate for that client um, fiercely. And you're only kind of hearing the one side of the story and but that's not, even though I'm an attorney by trade, that's not my job as a parenting coordinator. And so I'm able to assess the situation in a very different light um, because I'm seeing the good and the bad of both parents um, as they're coming through. Who's following recommendations? Who's willing to take the proper steps to get the personal help? Who's not? Who's mm-hmm. resistant to recommendations and why? Um, and so you really get a good idea of who's really um, perpetuating this ball to keep going as opposed to wanting it to stop. Some parents come in and I'll have one parent and they're done, done with litigation. They want out, they, they need assistance, please help. Um, and the other parents not ready. They want the fight. Uh-huh. They, they want it to continue. And so it's, yeah, it's helping them get out of that dysfunctional dance that I call it. Yeah, that is exactly, that's a great word for it. Cause I was thinking pattern, but it is a dance and it's just but they need a new one, a new way in which to operate. Um, so now is a good time for a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about confidentiality, why that's so important and why it really, how it really plays a part in parenting coordination. And while you wait, we encourage you to visit womenwinningdivorce.com um, and subscribe to the show. Check out our resources and please leave us a review so that other women can find this show and this content. We will be right back. 
We are back with Cynthia Salome discussing using a parenting coordinator in high conflict divorce cases. And if you're in a high conflict divorce case, you know it. So don't worry if you're like, I wonder if I'm in a high conflict divorce right now. You'll know. Um, I promise you know, because you're just like always, always finding. Always, there's just never a meeting of the minds and an agreement. Um, and if you've listened, if you're just joining us now, please go back and listen to the beginning of the show and then you'll know if it's you for sure. Um, and what I want to talk about now is the confidentiality part, because I find this very interesting and and I understand it, even though as you know, as a lawyer for our listeners, okay, so you know, your attorney represents you, everything we discuss is confidential. Um, but that's why we don't meet with you and your spouse if we're your attorney, because then it's not confidential. And you know, as attorneys, we're like, oh well, we want, you know, all these people you work with to be a great witness in trial or when when you know we need to go back um because some we tend to think we'll probably be back in court. But, and, and this does apply to mediation as well. We're not, you know, we certainly have episodes on mediation, which our listeners can find, but there's a lot of similarities um, that can occur. So let's talk about why confidentiality is so important in the parenting coordination context. Sure. Um, so confidentiality out of the gate is it's an, such an important part of parenting coordination. Um, in, in most cases, it's a, it's a critical component for PC success. Um, ultimately, the goal of parenting coordination is to offer the parents a different venue and to kind of set the reset button. Um, because like we mentioned previously, they've been litigating on, and it's an opportunity for them to get out of the system, to have a different venue, to begin hopefully making decisions amicably for their children's sake. Um, and it, it can offer a sense of peace to certain parents as well. And so if parenting coordination remains confidential in the manner in which it was intended, there should be very little posturing um, from either parent to set up for the next stunt or the next hearing. Um, I'll hear oftentimes from my clients who have been in the system for so long that I don't trust him or her. Um, this is just another way for him to set me up or they're going to use this in litigation if I tell you A, B, C, or D or whatever the situation might be. So by keeping the process confidential, it's less likely that the acts of what these parents are doing are gonna to lead to litigation because I, I can't speak about certain things that happen in PC and neither are they able to. So it really just offers kind of a fresh start. Um, and nobody has this sense of that we have to record everything. When you're litigating, you're recording every correspondence, you're you know, some of my clients have come in with files of past emails and threads. So um, it really just is an opportunity for them to have a reset button and understand that the process is not intended to lead them back to court. It's the complete opposite. Um, and that's why confidentiality is, is, has been implemented or, or the idea of why you want PC to be confidential. And now, and are there, because that does make sense to me, even though, of course, you know, I'm always looking at who is going to be a good witness, who can right. be a witness to the judge, right? To say, no, my client is not the bad guy, um, right? They're the innocent party, because that's, of course, what I'm looking for um, on behalf of my client. But I think if they know, it, it, that begins to build a level of trust, right? You can't go into the court pointing fingers and saying they're not cooperative. They're not being helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That Now that's the intent. That's the intent. So you tell know. us what can happen. <laughs> and so as a parenting coordinator, you're given your best and you're on a case for two or three years and the same behaviors are present. And one parent or the other hasn't had the, the, the parental growth that you were hoping for at a certain point in the PC process. And the, the same problems are flooding the family consistently. Um, at that point, as a parenting coordinator, there, there are times when I can see, or I have had a court mandate me to speak with respect to why is this family still having all of these issues? Um, they wanna know who's the culprit, who's not following your recommendations, whose behavior keeps leading them back to court when the courts don't have the resources to continue 
um, hearing these cases on, on really just minor matters. And so there are excerpts in the confidentiality statute that I think are valid. Um, I don't, I don't like orders. I've received orders where confidentiality is completely stripped from the onset. Um, to me, I think that that's just utilizing the PC process as a pawn to set up for the next hearing. Um, so inherently we want PC to be confidential. There are absolutely certain cases when they are at this level of high conflict that the courts want to know, the judge wants to know, why are you guys back? Why are you in front of me again? And um, Cynthia, tell me who, who's, who's not abiding by your neutral third party recommendations um, and why, why, does, why do they continue to, to come back? Um, it's seldom, but it does, it does happen. Um, and it, it depends also on the judge presiding and, and what they want to know and, and how long the, the case has been in front of the court, right? How many times have they appeared? <laughs> so Right. I think if, if, yeah, because, you know, for our listeners, um, really once you're in court, the judges, they typically stay in that division. So you, um, you're kind of stuck with that judge and you may have been seeing that judge for the past five or six years and they'll forget. Um, even though you think they do, there are some cases that they just don't. And they can, and usually what I've seen is, and if they remember you, it's, it's usually not a good thing. Um, and that I do know for sure, uh, when I've had cases and the judges are like, no, I do remember you and you guys, there are awful, blah, blah, blah. You can't get along. <laughs> That's not good. You know, we don't, I don't ever want our clients to be in that position, but you're going to be going back before that judge and, you know, saying, hey, when are they going to retire? Like, that's not a great strategy either. I think your children will probably be 18 before then. So that's, I think, and I, I can see a good and bad. I'm not really sure it's appropriate for a judge to break the confidentiality that, you know, you as the three of, you know, you engaging in parenting coordination have agreed to. Right. Um, because it's always going to influence a decision the judge makes about the individuals, right? Sure. And even though my client may be like, yeah, well, I want them to know and, and think badly about this other person, but the truth is, well, the next time it'll be you. And now they're taking personal kind of things about you to make decisions. And I don't always think that's the right way to go because you're not maybe in your best self of who you really can be when you're in these in this high conflict dance like you said I, I think that when they're in that situation they're certainly not always presenting as the, as the best person that they can be um sure. and so you know we're seeing not always their best right and i, and I would say for the vast majority 99 percent of the time even if i'm mandated to speak um about let's say why the PC process hasn't been successful. We're not, we're, we're still not allowed as parenting coordinators to give the details. It's, there's just exceptions based on, it's giving the details of the behaviors that are involved. Mm -hmm. So I would never, let's say go into court, nor do I think a judge would mandate me to give specifics about the conversations that we're having in PC. It's mostly just an overall scope of why hasn't it been successful. Um, and, and what are some behaviors that are leading to this? But again, 99% of the cases, confidentiality is upheld um, and that's what leads to the success because the parents are able to take a, a deep breath of relief and say, I can speak candidly and openly with you in hopes that you can help. Um, but they have, to, they have to want the help. And so, yeah. And now, and I also, I mean, I believe it does really take two I'm sure you've had cases where you see one parent, they're, they're doing the best, they're working it through, right? I mean, right. they're they're trying to, but if both of them aren't really uh, fully engaged, it can only be so successful, I would imagine. It can only be so successful, that's right. And there are portions um, throughout the PC process where litigation is still necessary. Mm -hmm. If, you know, we had discussed parenting plans that have flaws. And so as a parenting coordinator, we're there to implement the current parenting plan. And if we can get the parents to um, make modifications amongst themselves in the PC process, that's great. 
But if they're on opposite ends of the spectrum on what that uh, modification needs to be, the detailed portion of their parenting plan that isn't explicit, and I can't get them to a meeting of the minds, well, then the, the attorneys have to be involved. And I think um, the courts know that and the judges know that and, and the attorneys know that. There's only, you know, really parenting coordination is trying to help improve communication between these parents where they are able to come up with, with agreements that work for their children and for their children at that point in their lives. Sometimes parenting plans are three, four, five, six years old and the children aren't, aren't two anymore. They're now eight or 10. And so there needs to be some change that, that, that needs to be made to the parenting plan um, without having to resort to litigation, without having to resort to the judge having this to decide on everything. And so that's a great portion of PC as well. Now, I have a question for you because I would imagine our listeners um, would be thinking this because you've talked about your recommendations. Do you ever have cases where you, if they can't agree, you can make a decision and they have to follow that? Is that ever anything you've incorporated into um, a PC contract? So it's, it's never a blank slate. Um, it's very rare. I would say that tie-breaking authority is incorporated in a parenting coordination court order. Um, I don't think it needs to be in a parenting coordination order um, from, from the beginning. Because again, you want parents to be able to improve communication and get to a place where they can make decisions for themselves. It's not it's not a success in PC if you have the case for 10 years, right? The, <laughs> the idea is that you're, you're giving them the knowledge, the expertise, and the confidence to know that they can communicate with this other parent after divorce, that they can um, not like that person, but still work with them and make decisions that are best for their child at that point in their life, because children are ever-changing and their needs change. And you have to discuss and talk about those decisions with the other parent that has 50% say. And so the I, the the uh, PC success is when you can get parents for a little a little bit, set up right. the proper foundation, and then you utilize the PC process as a preventative measure. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's ideal. So I don't think that from the get-go, a parenting coordinator should have tie-breaking authority because A, I, I think that that's very subjective and a parent's desires for their child varies from person to person and from family unit to family unit. So um, if it's a limited scope tie-breaking authority, I think that that's fine with, let's say, transfer times if the parents can't agree. Okay, well, that's that's not a make it or break it. I don't think a parenting coordinator should have tie-breaking authority on school decisions or medical providers or um, therapy for their children. I think that that is really something that um, the parents themselves should be making. Um, and so I don't love the idea of having tie-breaking authority, but I understand in certain um, certain portions of um, the PC orders where that may, may be necessary, but it's very, very rare, I would say. And I can see that. Again, it doesn't, it puts you in a different position rather than the collaborative, everybody working together, because now they know you get yeah. to make a decision. And I can see where for the, it, it really kind of goes against the entire intent and purpose right. as it originally begins. But, you know, there, there are always those situations and um, those things come up. But um, before we go, Cynthia, I would like to ask you um, if you can impart on our listeners what you have learned about divorce and specifically things that would help women as you've done this for many years as our listeners are mostly women. And if you have anything that you can you know, impart on them. Sure. And um, I think overall what I've learned about divorce is that it shouldn't define a parent for the duration of their parenting life with the other parent. Um, typically, during a divorce, people aren't acting at, at their best moment or at their finest. And it doesn't mean if you had a bad spell of a year that that defines you as a person or as a parent. It just means that you went through a rough patch. And um, as humans, we can understand that. We're not all perfect. And the human emotion can can take over sometimes our better judgment. And so Oftentimes I'll 
have parents with a great deal of guilt um, because their their children have suffered greatly mm -hmm. from the divorce and from the turmoil that they that the parents have kind of exposed them to. So I would tell um, women to give themselves a little bit of grace if they are in a high conflict situation. Know that some of it was in their control, but probably not all of it, and that there's a way out. That there's hope at the end of the tunnel and you don't have to be defined by the moments um, of your behaviors of, of when you were going through that divorce. And so um, I try and let my clients know that grace is, is a, is a part that we need to, we need to give one another and to start over. So. Oh, thank you so much. That that's wonderful. And you're so very true. I, I agree with you on that completely. And um. Thank you again for being on our show. We have uh, reached the end, but it has been a pleasure discussing this with you. Um, and I know uh, that it's been great information for our listeners. And um, you can find Cynthia at Dorenzo Psychology at drdorenzo.com. And of course, that link and uh, Cynthia's bio and all the social links will be provided in the show notes. So you can easily you know, reach out and find more about her and her practice. So thank you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a, just a great pleasure. We've learned so much and I look forward to talking to you later. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Women Winning Divorce. My goal is to elevate your life and the way you are thinking so that you are best equipped to win at life. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe so you automatically get my new shows every week. And I would love to hear from you personally. Come join the conversation on social and join our Facebook group, Women Winning Divorce. We welcome your comments and suggestions. We want to bring you content that helps move your life forward. Women Winning Divorce is the place for an elevated conversation on how women can thrive during times of adversity in order to live their best life. Hurry in during Ram Truck Month and discover what it truly means to drive a truck that's built to serve. Ram Truck Month, going on now. And now, current FCA vehicle owners finance and get $8,480 in total values on the 2023 Ram 1500 Bighorn Crew Cab. Don't miss this great offer. See your local Ram dealer today. Total values include combined cash allowance and 2,980 Bighorn Level 2 package value. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 5 123